Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you this evening with a glass of red wine. It's Friday night and I'm just out here uh, wanting to share actually a previous um, podcast that I had the opportunity to be a guest on with uh, CEO Mark Stolo of Huddle. And what Huddle is, um, it's a social networking community it was primarily designed um, with caregivers in mind, but it's a, a social network with a bunch of different communities that support health and wellness. So one of those communities is for caregivers, for example, um, you know, stress, anxiety, but also uh, support for healthcare professionals. And that's one of the communities that I'm kind of um, a pro in, so to speak, or a source of support to some of the members in that community. So I highly recommend you check out the social network. And I, I kind of reached out to Mark to ask him if he would be okay with me sharing this podcast that he and I did for Huddle. And it was basically about kind of the f focusing on compassionate care and empathy and you know co-learning with patients um, as a form of healing and helping patients achieve their maximal healing and recovery and, and independence so let me know what you guys think about the podcast um i I'm, i always welcome feedback of course and just input and kind of shared experiences from your own um, clinical experiences as well and as usual leave an honest review reach out to me on social media all of that information is in the show notes and enjoy the show this is the huddle.com lifecast we're talking to inspired and insightful people who have faced life's greatest challenges and broken through 
This is the Huddle.com Lifecast. I am your host, Mark Stolo. I'm joined today by Jennifer George, physiotherapist and the author of Communication is Care, Nine Empowering Strategies to Guide Patient Healing. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Mark. I find it amazing. You know, I go to your website to take, you know, spend a little time researching, understanding better your orientation. And the first thing you read when you come to your website is kind of gobsmacking. And it reads, imagine a healthcare system armed with only emotionally intelligent professionals. And my first thought is, why do we have to imagine a system like that? Tell people a little bit about what you meant by, what you mean by that statement when you say a healthcare system armed with emotionally intelligent professionals. I think in healthcare, um, it's very, you know, just because of our training and the competitiveness of getting into our postgraduate training, everything is so knowledge-based and emphasized on technical skill um, that we don't spend enough time on getting to understand human behavior and human interaction and the impact that that could have on patient healing and recovery. And and not only that alone, but the, the global effect that that could have, right, on like length of stays, um, healing times, um, compliance, adherence to programs, surgical outcomes, all that stuff, right? So when I say imagine, like I really do mean imagine it on a global scale. A lot of your uh, orientation towards, you know, creating more of the sensitivity in healthcare professionals grew out of your own interactions with the healthcare system above and beyond the work that you're doing professionally. Can you tell people a little bit about what your experience was like moving through the healthcare system when you were providing care? Yeah. Um, so back in 2007, um, I suddenly became a caregiver to my chronically ill father. And at the time, up until then, my life was pretty good. I, you know, I did everything a typical person would do um, at that age. I was in my mid-20s. Um, I went to school, went to university, and then went did my master's in physiotherapy. So I was in the program then, and I was just about to start practicing, and my dad fell ill at the time. So um, I had learned a lot about healthcare delivery, not from my schooling, but from my lived experiences with my dad. And what we saw were, or what I saw, I guess, um, in being a caregiver to him over the years was um, gaps in communication. And to me, it felt as if um, there were significant gaps that if they had been filled, um, conflicts could have been prevented um, and his healing and our outcomes as caregivers and our outlook, I should say, um, would have been easier throughout. It got easier as time went on, but that was because we were in it for so long and we had lived it for so long. So my professional practice as a physio was starting to align um, emotionally, I guess you could say, um, and communication-wise with um, my, my journey of being a caregiver. So I kind of learned the emotional intelligence from, from lived experience. Hmm. How do we, I mean, I guess there's this understanding and, or sometimes this notion in healthcare that clinical practice should be 
you know, devoid of bias and devoid of emotional content. And, Uh you know, we have to like uh, follow the straight and narrow because otherwise we confound the clinical experience. What do you say to people who, who advocate very rigidly for that outlook in terms of healthcare intervention? Yeah, like just on my onset of practice, um, I was taught basically to, yeah, like to not show much emotion, to be cognitively aware, but not emotionally um, aware um, or relatable. But I've now switched that because I'm seeing the, the big struggle that I see with, with patients is the navigating and caregivers is navigating through the system, right? And because I was a caregiver for so long and I lived through that, I can't help now but share those parts of my journey because like it would only be a disservice to my patients, right, if I don't do that. And I think it makes them relate to me better and I think it it makes them trust me more because they see that empathetic side as well, Um, you know, so I, I'm now more of an advocate of a little bit more vulnerability, I guess you can say, um, towards patients and just saying, you know, like, we're not perfect, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we, we've been through life challenges, too. And, and I'm seeing, and it's crazy, because I'm seeing this more and more now as time is going on, and, and I'm getting deeper and deeper into my practices. I'm just relating so much more on that level to patients as well. Yeah, I think it's sometimes this infallibility of professionals uh-huh translates into a kind of disconnection absolutely you know it's a very uh, a dynamic built on power and i and i say that take let's take that metaphorically because i don't think that any healthcare professional is necessarily trying to exercise power over their patient but the dynamic plays out that way Mm -hmm. i you know i am the wellspring of knowledge and you're here and i'm here to fill your cup Mm -hmm. what's what's why is that problematic? Why is that orientation problematic? It's, pro- it's problematic because it disempowers whether we realize it or not. I, if I can share a story about this, this, this is sure. a story that, that really uh, affected me. Um, so I work on an inpatient rehab unit. So um, we, I had a patient in my care who had severe cognitive issues and so memory loss, confusion, things like that. Um, and his spouse um, was his caregiver essentially. But he hadn't been home in months because of an orthopedic issue um, that was keeping him in hospital. And we were, we were um, going through education together, him, him myself, and his wife, um, doing a car transfer. And at the, at the end of the car transfer, it went pretty well. She responded, or he responded well to her and everything. And at the end, she, she said, Jen, you know, I have to ask you. And he's been, he's been months in the hospital at this point, Mark. And she's like, I have to ask you, is it okay if I take my husband out um, for a Sunday afternoon home with our family? He had, you know, it's our grandchildren's. There was something going on with their grandchildren and she just wanted him there. And he, and I turned to him and I said, well, you don't have to ask me that. I said, I I turned to my patient. I said, do you want to be there? Like, do you want to go? And he said, yes, I would love to go. Like, I love my grandchildren and I haven't been home in forever. And it broke my heart because she just started bawling when I said, of course, like, why are you asking me? Right. Um, But I really think part of it comes from just lack of knowledge like patients don't know they don't want to hurt you know they don't you know she doesn't want to cause harm right so she she isn't going to take that stance of well I I want to bring my husband home on the weekend and you guys figure it out but I want to bring him home type type Mm -hmm. of thing right Mm -hmm. um 
So that's where I see it being disempowering. But it kind of like it really affected me because I, I couldn't believe she was asking permission to bring her husband home. Right. But he had been in the hospital for so long that she probably just didn't have any clear direction or education or anything like that. I think it's actually a great story that illustrates a very paradoxical phenomenon, which is this idea of when we deprive caregivers, patients of uh, their power, mm-hmm. um, we help we erode their self-trust. And in the process of eroding that self-trust, uh, we often turn them into like passive recipients of care who mm-hmm. are afraid to advocate, who are afraid to take charge who feel um, uh, uncomfortable with processes. And that creates a cascading effect of things like non-adherence. Right. It it just creates a, like, I don't feel comfortable in my own mind and body to take charge of what's going on here because I'm waiting for someone to tell me what to do. Exactly. And I see that a lot when patients come into my care from an acute care site because in an acute care site, maybe it's because they're more medically unstable, right? So they're not, they're still not in control of, of their life at that point, maybe in a way. Um, but when they come into our setting, it's completely the opposite. We're encouraging more independence again and self-control and self-management. And, and, it's, and it's sometimes resisted by patients, right? Because hmm. unaware, like unawarely to them, they de- they've developed a need or a dependency on the hospital and, and the healthcare right. system that way, right? So we're here to say, no, like now, you know, you're medically stable enough that we can get back to life again, right? And this is where we start and kind of walking them through that. And, you know, for some, it's a, it's a big transition, even if they live their lives very independently and something just sidetracked them like a, you know, a fractured hip or something, right? Um, it can really institutionalize you just being a couple of weeks in a hospital. Like it, it's yeah. a, it's kind of profound. It doesn't take much, but it takes a lot of effort to empower and it takes a lot of time. Yeah. It's interesting that the skew in power creates a kind of dependency. So like everyone's, I, I all, believe so. Yeah. And everyone's all, all about like, how do we, you know, how do we optimize, improve efficiencies? Certainly we want people taking better self care, but the rules sometimes are set up against that principle i remember being in hospital with my wife she was sharing a room with a woman uh an older woman uh next to her and you know the doctors would come in every once in a while and do their uh, the nurses would come in and do their check-in and they would often ask about pain threshold right so this one out of ten scale pain threshold uh tool they use and the woman next door always answered the same way 13 (laughs) (laughs) And the 13 for her meant, I don't want to leave the hospital. I'm Mm -hmm. afraid to leave the hospital. I now have a functional dependence on what's going on here because someone's giving me attention. Someone's, you know, which which is maybe an extreme example. But there is often this case where we build a power dynamic or we build a dependency dynamic where uh, people no longer become uh, decision makers in their lives. Um, and, and we can't kind of cut it both ways. I don't think we can have it both ways. Either we're building a relationship based on a mutuality, uh, conversation, um, uh, complementary points of view, or we're essentially fostering a relationship built on dependence. 
Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that you advocate a lot for is, and it's kind of embedded in the in the mission of your book, is yeah. communication, different kinds yeah. of communication. Do contrast for people listening. What's typical? What you see as typical forms of communication, and what you're trying to advocate for when we talk about like compassionate care uh, right. communication. Um, so when I like typical communication is kind of just. Um, speaking to, right, everything is done to, um, whereas, in my opinion, um, uh, intentional communication is kind of what I speak about in the book, purposeful, compassionate, and empathetic. Um, it, it's more of a state of being, right? It's more of a state of presence and mindfulness when you're with a patient and um, being fully aware of, of trying to understand where they're coming from. And I always look not at the point of where I'm meeting them, but I always ask them about their lives proceeding because that's the full story, right? And that's essentially what they've lost and want to get back to. And then it's having that open discussion um, of of interaction rather than me just um, tra- transactionally providing care, providing information, educating. I can spew that all day. But if it's not being received and acted upon by my patient, then it means nothing, right? And I don't know that when they leave me, you know, are they going to fall through the cracks? And that's a big thing with communication, too, is I find that a lot of patients fall through the cracks because things are not communicated clearly. And Mm -hmm. it's not, uh, you know, patients aren't understanding fully and they're not feeling understood fully, right? And that's the mutual um, reciprocation that needs to be there in that experience, I think. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Laura Huxley, Aldous Huxley's wife, uh, who was a psychologist, a lot of people mm-hmm. haven't heard of her, they've heard of Aldous Huxley, said something that always rang true with me. And she said, speak to people in a language they can understand. Yes. And what that yeah. means really is not, if someone speaks English, speak English. What that means is, is understand the person that you're speaking to, mm-hmm. nurture a compassion with the person you're speaking to, and then find a language that they can connect with. Absolutely. Whether yeah. through storytelling or analogy. What, what do you find is different in your practice when you nurture a more compassionate outlook when it comes to communication, when it comes to the way of practicing? Well, essentially what I, what I mean by communication is connection, mm-hmm. right? So I really mean that there's, like I said, a deep mutual level of understanding. Um, I... I, you know, for example, like when I um, go into rounds, so we have rounds meetings, right? And they're not done with patients. They're done just among the interdisciplinary team. So being transparent about that, I speak about that with my patients and and I'll say to them, you know, we're having a meeting with the doctor, um, a team meeting, and, you know, I'm going to provide them with an update on where you're at, Um, you know, and of course we talk about that. And then I'll, I'll always say to them, is there something you want, because you're not there, is there something you want me to bring forward? Is there something you want me to say on your behalf? I can't tell you, Mark, how much I'm more of the flow in between as much as I am the, the direct care practitioner. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a huge connector between the patient and the doctor and the patient and, um, you know, coordinating services, you know, on an outpatient level. Things like that are really big because that's what's missed and that's what creates conflict and that's what creates noncompliance and that's what creates, you know, ER visits increasing and things like that, right? It's a big cycle. Yeah. And I can foresee that 
from where I'm at with my patients and I, and I educate them on that. I, I kind of paint that big picture for them to see that there's more, that they're, that they ultimately need to be empowered or feel empowered to take on more beyond this hospital when they leave. And, and usually my patients, I, I, I'm happy to say they seem to feel fully informed and confident when they leave, um, on what's next. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting that people build walls and you open doors. Right. Um, it's, I don't think anyone right. intends to build these walls, but the, the, Me neither. the, the clinical, the very dry clinical outlook, the rote approach to healthcare creates walls. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it creates distance, it creates walls, it creates discomfort, it creates everything that's really antithetical to building a deep partnership. So having people right. like you who are breaking down those walls is so mm-hmm. massive. Exactly. And I like how you said partnership because that's essentially what, what it is. It, it's Should it, could, it, could it possibly be anything else? You know, I can't see how <laughs> I can't see how it can. Be. I only see two um, potential scenarios: either the healthcare system is in service to right. the client, right? So, like, if anything, the power dynamic is the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think in an optimal setting, it's really pure partnership. We come it, it in. Really is. We have mutual goals. We're going to work together to help achieve those goals. You know, it's two people pulling together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's even in, around the goals, like if we don't meet them, it's having that honest conversation right about them and not passing the buck and passing the buck and waiting for the next person to take care of it, and the next person to take care of it. Right. What I, I take that stance of transparency right then and there. And my patients by that point have gained trust in me, right? They know that I'm not there to, in, to provo- um, induce fear or anything like that. I'm just there to be honest and I will help them find a way to where they want to be. Right. Um, right. And just creating that, um, that positive interaction around it all. Yeah. Right? They see you like an ally. Right, they exactly. should. And an advocate. They should. And an yeah. advocate, absolutely. And a navigator. Yeah. Right. right. You're the right. person who helps make things happen. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Because, you know, I can't tell you how many times patients come through and they ha- they've had tests and tests and tests done and they haven't heard a result back yet. Mm. And it's been days, weeks, unnecessarily. And they, they haven't even asked. They just assume, well, if I don't hear anything, it's either good or if I don't hear anything, then there's nothing to be talked about, right? Like they, so then we're stagnant, right? right. And uh, whereas I'm the person that's like, okay, well, let's try to find out what that result shows in order to to get where you want to be, right? So, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's compelling. It's hard. It I mean, is. What's, uh, you know, one of the one of the challenges that you'll hear health professionals talk about often is, and they're you know, it's just a recurrent theme: um, money, time, mm-hmm. resources. <laughs> These are the big elephants in the room that I think sometimes we that charge through the drive towards compassion. And I don't want to say we use an excuse, but certainly we use as a reason why we can't be more attentive, why we can't be more compassionate. How do you address that with professionals who are saying to you, look, uh, I don't have time to eat lunch. You want me to be compassionate? (laughs) Like, help me sort this out. Yeah, I, I... Honestly, I don't think it takes any time to be compassionate, any extra time, any extra effort, because it's not just in 
what we're, we're, we're doing with our clinical practice and what we're known to be expert, experts for. But it's honestly in those day-to-day interactions of just being a good human being and a good person. Um, so like little things like um, just refilling a patient's glass of water. You know, somebody who's in a wheelchair that can't get out of the room, that can't navigate down the hall to get water. Instead of, for example, instead of me bothering my, my coworker, I'll go and get the, per- the patient water, right? Because the patient needs water and it's the right thing to do and it's the nice thing to do, right? But the, those are the types of things that are not part of the care plan, but go into creating that comprehensive experience, right? That, that felt experience of being um, valued, cared for, listened to, um, feeling important, that type of thing. Um, I, don't th- I don't think it costs any extra time to be compassionate. And patients are very aware. They're very sympathetic. They, they know that we're busy. Oftentimes, patients don't call for help because they don't want to burden staff, right? You often see that as well. Um, so us being visible and, and just little things like, is there anything I can get you before I leave the room? Is, you know, is there anything I could do for you? Do you have any questions for me? Just kind of circling around and, and kind of just ensuring that there's nothing left unsaid, um, and that the patient feels satisfied, fulfilled in that moment. Um, yeah, like I can't tell you, it's those little things that go into it, not the big things. It's not the the care that we're trying to provide. It's the care around the care <laughs> right, <laughs> that right. matters most. Right. And, and I believe that when, you know, um, facilities do reviews and they ask for surveys and things like that from patients that they often speak about those things. Sure. They don't talk, they don't, they don't um, talk about the knowledge that we have so much right? they, because they're not the experts, right. but they talk about how that was all conveyed and, and okay. shared. I would also add, I mean, like simple things, for example, through my experience, create a safe space for patients. I have been in in offices of healthcare professionals where there is no confidentiality. Mm -hmm. There are gaps Mm -hmm. between offices. Doors aren't being closed. How can someone feel safe and comfortable when they're supposed to be sharing their most intimate life details, Mm -hmm. but they don't feel like they're in a safe surrounding? Right. And preserving their dignity, right? Absolutely. Because when I see patients too, and and I'm... um, um, I'm covering them and, and stuff like that. I'm draping them. You'd be surprised by how many say they don't care and because they're just already so surrendered right. <laughs> to their right. past experiences. And then I kind of have to reframe their thinking and be like, no, like, you know, uh, your privacy is important, right? Like this sure. matters. You have to start like thinking about this a bit differently to kind of self-empower again, right? Yeah. And the other thing yeah. I would say is get to know your client. I've, yeah. you know, I've been in a hospital with my wife where she's had questions that were like, has anyone looked at this chart? Just mm-hmm. the last three lines of the chart. I'm not talking about years of history, but questions that are quite honestly at times inappropriate um, where someone yeah. is just not in tune with what procedures just been done, um, yeah. demonstrating a certain level of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. I'm just, it, it completely erodes the trust, completely to- erodes the trust. Totally. Like, I, you know, with my sessions, the way our schedule works is we get to spend roughly about an hour with each patient a day. But I will tell you right now that I, I probably spend a quarter of that hour just talking with my patient, just sitting with my patient, because that in itself is healing, right? If we know where we're going, and we know how you're feeling, and, you know, we can actually develop a, an individualized care plan that is meaningful for 
my patient in that moment, right? And that's, you know, I had a student the other day, this was a while back actually, and we had a patient who unfortunately had a fall. And, um, and I, I was saying to my student, I said, well, so we're going to talk to him about his fall. You know, we, we need to figure this out, why he had a fall so we could prevent in the future. So um, my patient initially was a little like, his, his pride was hurt, obviously, at that like, when we started talking about it. But once we worked through it and he shared and he, he kind of understood why it happened and ways to prevent it, he kind of felt empowered by it, right? And he mm-hmm. never had a fall. And he never had a fall after right, that. And, right. and my student turned to me and said, um, he, she, he said, okay, so we treated him technically for only a half an hour, right? Because we talked to him for about a half an hour. And I looked at my student, I said, well, I said, don't you think communication is care? And and he was like, oh yeah, like, you know, because it clicked, right? That was a treatment essentially, even though it was verbal and connecting, right? Like that's still treatment. You had to break through the veneer of the shame to be able to actually provide a therapeutic intervention. That requires a lot of emotional self-awareness and a lot of presence with, the person in front of you. Like I will see doctors talking to people and you mm-hmm. can see that there's no information flowing one way. Someone is emotionally bereft. It's like a doctor who says to a patient, I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer. Let's mm-hmm. start assuming that probably 95% of everything you say after cancer, they're not hearing. Oh, completely not hearing. Yeah. And in, in a lot of cases, but yeah. yet, yet you're going to talk for the next 30 minutes about what that means. This person is now in a state of probably some you know, trauma induced, uh, state going through a deep level of stress, despair, all of that, I'm sure is just unraveling in their mind. And you're like, let me share with you some helpful information. Yep, exactly. <laughs> There's a bear and, and, coming and again, to attack you and I'm going to share, you know, right. I'm going to share some helpful information with you while you're like in this fight or flight stage of like high agitation. Exactly. And, and again, that's putting content before connection, right? right? And that, and I think it should be the opposite. Right. I think it should be connection before knowledge, technical, all that stuff. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. So I know that Thank you're you. providing a lot of workshops as well. Give people a sense of the kinds of skills that you'll impart through these workshops that you think help cultivate a more communicative, compassionate approach to care. Yeah, so one that we're, um, so I have never ran a workshop yet, but the first live one we're doing is in November, and it's actually for healthcare providers themselves. Um, It's actually designed for them, because a lot of the courses that we take, or expected to take, are all about output of skill. Again, output, 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 that we don't take in enough. So, um, and I really believe also that compassionate care comes from being compassionate with oneself and connected with oneself. So it's kind of a purpose-driven course that's um, going to have facilitated discussion on fulfillment, burnout, um, mindfulness, and self-care. Um, and then that's going to kind of set the stage for the next course on, on empathy and compassion. And then we can focus on those skills once the healthcare provider feels more aligned within themselves. Mm-hmm. So... Why, yeah. do, why do you think so many healthcare professionals are experiencing compassion fatigue and compassionate burnout? You think it's a byproduct of some of this emotional disconnection, this idea of like creating your own internal reservoir of emotional um, okayedness? Yeah, and I yeah, I think to some degree. I also think that I think, and I hate to say this because I think it's getting better, but I do think 
there's this um, lack of community in healthcare, like among mm-hmm. healthcare providers, we don't share enough with each other. Um, we don't support each other enough as well. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people are, you're either very evidence-based, right? Or you're very, like, there's there's really nothing in between, or you're more on the spiritual side, right? And only Intuitive, that. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So it, we've got to find somewhere in between where we respect each other's practice um, and come to that mutual understanding. Because I'll, I'll tell you something, um, when I went through my caregiving journey with my dad, had we just listened to the evidence, we wouldn't have gotten 12 years with my dad, mm-hmm. right? Like, he, mm-hmm. we would have let him go. So I can't be 100% evidence-based because I know the power of uncertainty, and faith and, and all of those things that can't be otherwise medically explained. So having healthcare providers that are open to things like that, but compassion fatigue, I, I also think our lives are different too. They're more complex. Like a lot of healthcare professionals are also caregivers. I'm seeing that a lot more. They have aging parents that they're right. taking care of on some, to some degree, a lot of them are in debt. Um, so there's other factors, I think more so now than there ever used to be. And plus you're, you're also, giving care to to your patients every day and i think spreading yourself too thin can kind of start to make you feel you know a a bit burnt out right i think if anything it actually supports the importance of a lot of Mm self-care like things like mindfulness-based practice which which allows you to work through some of that you know quote unquote i don't want to toxic content that buildup of you know, because you're taking in a lot. When you're exposed right. to a lot of human suffering, mm-hmm. you are absorbing a lot of uh, intense energy, emotional yeah. energy, pain, anguish, distress. It's palpable. Yeah. It know? totally. So even more yeah. so why we should be encouraging healthcare institutions to be supporting this kind of healing with their staff and certainly mm-hmm. advocating for individuals to be proactive about, you know, creating creating safer spaces where they can kind of evacuate some of that energy. Um, so it doesn't exactly. build up. Exactly. And it, um, they, and they have a sustainable career, right? right? I think that even can be done again in the educational level, like just per, like for students to kind of be more aware. And that's kind of why I wrote the book too, to be more aware on the front end of the impact of um, compassionate care and like Mm -hmm. you said how it can lead to fatigue but i also think it can also help prevent burnout so i i'm I'm of the other mindset too because the more i give the better i feel right right and compassion is more of that action of of my purpose which is to um, be present to be empathetic um, and to serve with with my best heart possible right so um i i also feel like it refuels itself day to day but i do i do believe we also have to put into ourselves just as much yeah i would encourage actually decision makers and managers if you want to know what kind of health care you're providing go do a baseline Mm -hmm. test of the state of health of the people providing the care yeah i totally agree give you a very totally agree (laughs) i totally agree because we're all going to need health care at some point yeah right and um obviously the goal is to be more preventative if possible but um how can we make that an experience, like a positive experience for all of us? That's really where this comes from for me too, because I know that I, at one point I am going to, at some point I am going to be, need the services of somebody else, right? So, um, you know, it's empowering people to to know what to look for and to feel mm-hmm. comfortable and safe in that space, like you said. Yeah, I think that's a really great guiding question is how would I want to be treated? Mm-hmm. What kind of care would I want? 
And how do I get to a place where I can deliver that kind of care? Exactly. And how can I get there, right? It's taking the action. Because I think we all want to be there. I think all, most healthcare providers do it for, for that reason of, of wanting to serve. Um, but then it's putting that into action because it is a conscientious journey through life, I think. It's, it's not always easy, right? Yeah, totally so agree. It's, it's getting through the grind, yeah. Thank you for sharing those insights. Now we take the time welcome. to let people get to know you at a more personal okay. level. Um, okay. <laughs> Lifecast questionnaire time. What's your sure. favorite quality in a person? Um, my favorite quality in a person is someone with integrity, someone who's true to themselves and, and their intentions and lives life according to um, what they believe, right, and, and what they value. So um, I think living in integrity, someone who lives in their integrity is, is um, something I truly value. Agreed. Deeply valued by me as well. Is there a mm. mantra or um, a thought, a kind of a grounding thought that guides your life, something that you turn back to that you just feel like, okay, I feel centered around that idea? Honestly, um, it's not a, it's just gratitude. It's just saying thank you. That grounds me every day. And mm -hmm. I say that at any time during the day, not that, you know, whenever I, I feel inclined to do so. Um, I have patients who say it out loud sometimes, you know, when I'm working with them, they'll say, oh, thank God. And I'll say it with them. So whenever I, I feel called to, to say thank you, I, I do. It's definitely in the mornings and definitely in the evenings and sometimes throughout my day. Love it. And I, what I think is great is there's so much great research coming out about gratitude and how it literally can change your perception, your brain. It like just has, it's more than something ethereal and, you know, philosophical. It really has a profound change on how you move through the world. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. Is, yeah. there, is, there, is there a person that stands out for you that's had a major influence on how you see the world? Uh, my mom, for sure. Um, my mom was my dad's primary caregiver. Um, but my mom uh, is the most non-judgmental person I've ever met. <laughs> and she um, always gives people the benefit of the doubt, always understands there's a story and um, and kind of tries to always have a clear perspective and understanding of others. So definitely her. So many people like have mom as their hero. I'm just I, you know. honestly, I'm waiting for people to be like, you know, Martin Luther King and Gandhi. And everyone's like, you know? mom, of course, mom. Yeah. Why not mom? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, and I, and I know it's, it's cliche, but it's true. Right. Martin Luther King. I don't, I don't know him. Right. right. I, I know what he's done right. and I admire that. But right. the person she is, is, is who I admire most. Love so it. amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Is there Thank an area you. of your life right now where you're doing some of your own personal growth work? Putting on these workshops, for mm. sure. Um, having written my book and hoping to write another um, in the near future. But yeah, the workshops right now and just kind of joining the the, um, the conversation on communication and healthcare is, is something new for me. Um, kind of stepping out of my comfort zone and putting myself in situations um, and partnerships with people um, that will give me more of a voice and give a voice to, to my message and movement. Yeah, I'm sure that'll so. present all kinds of new challenges, certainly when you're talking to healthcare professionals and sometimes it will. break down barriers. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. And that's, I foresee that being a challenge, but, you know, the message is that that much more important to me. So someone has to carry the baton. 
Right. <laughs> Someone has to do it. I mean, that's I, t- that's what it means to be to you know leadership and pioneering. That's what it is. It's baton yeah. carrying. Yeah, absolutely. Out of out of pure curiosity, mm-hmm. not not at any form of self denial. Is there um, any person or anything that you would want to try to be for a day? Oh, I um, just for a day. Um, oh, I don't know, but I've always said that I would either want to teach or I would want to be a student for life. So in some way, shape or form, I, I want to be a part of growth and learning and lived experience. And, um, yeah. It, it sounds like you're about to do a whole lot of teaching, which is amazing. And you're a that's student what I'm hoping to do. and you're a student to your clients, which is Absolutely. also amazing. Also oh my God, that's, that's exactly right. That's so true. And I, and I do say that to them, that I'm not the expert that they are. So mm-hmm. um, it, like you said, it's a partnership completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, to empower every single person to self-manage their health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be just an absolutely amazing leap forward. Yeah. Yeah, but I think you know well, the one thing I think that you've shared today is that healthcare professionals do have that um, ability to act as a catalyst and to trigger in people that feeling of okay, you can take charge of this. I'm mm-hmm. here as a companion and as a guide. So I think you're yeah. exercising a lot of that superpower. Yeah, and I and I've been doing it on a one to one basis all these years, right? But now I'm hoping by stepping out of my comfort zone, I, I can have more of a global impact on other providers to do the same. I have no doubt you will. Jennifer, thank you so. for all that you do and, and you are and everything that you embody in your practice. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been great having me on the show. I, I've appreciated your time and everybody else's time listening. Absolutely. You can stay connected and learn with Jennifer on huddle.com. She's taken a leadership role in the community. We have a we have a community inside of Huddle dedicated to support for healthcare professionals. So if you want to keep learning, discovering, um, walking that path with Jennifer, her handle on Huddle is at Jennifer George. The Huddle community is a place to meet amazing people who are sharing wisdom, finding support, and becoming the best versions of themselves. This has been the Huddle.com Lifecast. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you for turning on to your lives. 